वसुदेवासुत कंसचाणूरमर्दनम परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गु in the fourth chapter of the bhagavad gita is saying that sri krishna is building up to teach something very profound so uh, in the verses 16 17 um, sri krishna has already told us that what is karma what is action and what is not action even the wisest of people are confused here and i shall tell you that this secret i'm going to tell you a secret by knowing which you will attain liberation moksha se ashubhad you will be free of samsara you will be free of the inauspicious he means samsara here you will get the highest thing that is liberation salvation freedom um he goes on to say that you know one might think what is so special about action and not action i mean if you do something that's action if you just sit quietly that's not action that's all you lie down that's not action no he says uh, krishna said in the 17th verse there is something deep to be understood about action there is something deep to be understood about what is wrong action and something equally deep to be understood about what is not action because he said gahana karmano gati mysterious and profound are the ways of action so with this background sri krishna has come to the 18th verse which is one of the most important verses of the whole bhagavad gita uh, in this verse this already advertised and promised secret will be revealed to us and what he's going to do here in this 18th verse is basically um the essence of gyana yoga the path of knowledge what is the crucial teaching it's he has already said that in the second chapter that we are the atman or we are brahman that has been taught but now the big issue is how to make it manifest in our life you see the uh, one thing is to become enlightened one thing is to know the ultimate truth but then the other another thing equally important more important is to live it is to live that truth to walk the talk um as swami vivekananda very profoundly defined religion as the manifestation of the divinity already within us so it's not just knowing or realizing the divinity but it has to be expressed we must feel it within ourselves it must be expressed in our speech and our action so the manifestation of the divinity how can we divinize our lives how can we get the promised benefits from that ultimate reality of realizing that i am brahman so what is the core teaching and how do you make it manifest in life i think this is the sum and substance of spirituality and that's what he's going to talk about in fact he will start on the, in this verse the whole essential teaching will be in this verse that's this is the most important verse uh, 18th verse of fourth chapter very important but then he will expand upon this theme for the next few verses reaching a climax in the 24th verse so from the 18th to the 24th is a kind of summation of advaita vedanta uh, the path of knowledge the 24th verse verse is probably very well known to all of us it's what we chant before our meals brahma pranam brahma hari uh, so it's going to reach a climax in that verse so the crucial teaching is in this verse which is coming up now um this verse is interesting let's just I'll chant the verse and translate, and then we'll look at it. So today's entire class is devoted to this one verse. It's very important that we get a handle on what's going on here. Karmanya karma ya pashed, akarmani cha karma ya, sabudhiman manusheshu, 
Sayukta Kritsna Karma Krit. Translation He who sees inaction, in action, and action in inaction is wise amongst men. He is poised and a performer of all actions. Paradoxical language. Uh, it, how, how do you see when there's activity going on? You say there is no activity and then there is no activity. You see there is activity. And how is this being wise and so on? So it's, it's paradoxical language. Um, why does Krishna not stray, say outright, you are Brahman and uh, then live your life as if you are Brahman? Instead of saying that, why does he go through this paradoxical language? Um, two reasons. One, there is a, there's a cute story about this. So let me share the cute story first and I'll give you the deeper philosophical reason next. Why this difficult paradoxical language? Um, the story goes back to the writing of the Mahabharata. So the Bhagavad Gita is of course part of the Mahabharata, which is, is huge, is tremendously long epic. Um, I am just reminded. Yesterday I was in this online class uh, at the Harvard Divinity uh, School with a group of PhD students. Among them is uh, uh, Nell Hawley, who is Professor Jack Hawley's daughter. You know, Jack Hawley came and gave a talk at the Vedanta Society. And she is the Sanskrit teacher for Harvard University, uh, Nell. And she is doing her PhD at the same time. And her PhD is on the Mahabharata. So this enormous um, text... Now, the, the cute story about this is, of course, Vyasa com composed it, uh, the sage Vyasa. And uh, for his stenographer, for his scribe, he had none other than Ganesha, Ganapati, Ganesha. Ganesha was supposed to write it down. And Ganesha had a condition. Ganesha said to Vyasa that, I'll do it, I'll write it. You dictate what you want me to write and write this thing down. But the condition is, you can't stop. If you pause, I will... Just walk away. I'll leave it. I mean, sort of, I'll be ruthless about it. I won't come back to the work. It'll be unfinished. So today we'd have said that the kid has serious ADHD, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They give him a pill. But uh, Ganesha, that was Ganesha's condition. Vyasa was no less because Vyasa knew. Uh, you have to, if you have to, if you compose it, uh, you have to take a breath and to think about it. And you're writing it in verses, in Sanskrit verses, no, no less. To compose thousands and thousands and tens of thousands, it is more than a hundred thousand verses. So to compose that without any any break, that's impossible. Um, so he had to make build in some kind of fail safe, you know. So he said, "All right, done. I have a condition too. What's the condition? I will compose and dictate to you. You write it down. But the condition is you must not write anything that you don't understand." So, you have to understand and then write it down. You know, it's often very easy to take down dictation uh, I, I, without understanding. If you, if you have uh, written or typed uh, when somebody is dictating, I have done it. You get into a flow and when you realize you're not really listening to what is being said, it's somehow bypassing your conscious um, you know, the capacity to, to uh, interpret and um, cognize what is being said. Without doing understanding, also one can keep typing it out. So, Ganesha uh, had uh, he agreed to this condition. All right, I won't write anything without understanding. 
So what Vyasa did was, when he was running out of steam, maybe running out of breath, uh, he would compose a particularly difficult verse. In Sanskrit, these are called Granthi. Granthi means not. So uh, he would have to, he would compose that and it would take Ganesha just a moment, you know. He's tremendously intelligent, but he would pause. Hmm, what does that mean? And by the time it took Ganesha to, uh, time to understand what was meant, Vyasa would have composed maybe a dozen more verses and he could go along, sail along nicely. So some of these difficult verses, um, they are scattered across the Mahabharata. In the Bhagavad Gita also there are a few and this is one of them. So this was to put the brakes on, on Ganesha. So this is just a story, this, this uh, acute story about it. The deeper philosophical reason is the truth about Advaita Vedanta, that we are this pure consciousness, it cannot be expressed in language. Why it cannot be expressed in language? We keep hearing it. It is beyond language, beyond thought. Why it cannot be expressed in language? I have given a whole talk about that. Advaita Vedanta and the paradox of language. Um, there are reasons why, why the ultimate reality is beyond language, beyond expression, beyond thought. But given that it is beyond language, how do you express it in language? Because the Gita is language, the Upanishads are language, they are text, language. How do you express the inexpressible through language? It seems impossible, but they have, they have worked, the ancient rishis had different ways of working around this problem. One way, of course, we know the famous Neti Neti. If you cannot say what it is, you can at least say what it is not. You can say it is not this, it is not this, though you, and thereby indirectly indicate what you want to say. Another way is um, by paradoxical language. The use of paradoxes, greater than the greatest, smaller than the smallest. How can the same thing be greater than the greatest and smaller than the smallest? It moves, it moves not. In the Isha Upanishad. How is it that the same thing at the same time moves and moves not? Uh, it is the fa is farther than the farthest and nearer than the nearest. How is that possible? So paradoxical language is one way of getting around this problem of inexpressibility. Um, another way is pointing out through implied meaning. So there are different strategies. About four or five strategies were used by the rishis and the Upanishads to express the inexpressible. One is this paradoxical language. So that's the deeper philosophical reason why Krishna uses such language. Um, so Shankaracharya writes a long commentary, page after page. Most verses is, he is uh, he's happy to write a couple of lines or a short paragraph. But here, several pages, he goes deep into this, uh, this particular verse. So what I'm going to say to you is based on his commentary. If we have time, we shall, I shall read out actually the portions of his commentary. We'll see how it sounds when you read the original. So, first of all, it on the face of it, this is strange. One who sees things as they are, we consider that person to be wise. If you see things as they are not, if somebody see, sees the sky and says it is the sky and sees the earth and says it is the earth, we say, okay, he's a wise person. He's telling it as it is. But if someone reverses it, looks at the sky and says, there is the earth, looks at the earth and says, that's the sky, you think he's insane. So when there is action, you should say there is action. When there is no action, you should say that's no action. The person who reverses it, how he, Krishna says he is wise, he is a yogi, he is the accomplisher of all actions. How is that person wise? Who sees no action when there is action, who sees action when there is no action, how is that wise? So let's get into it. 
It is entirely based on Shankara's commentary. So here goes. It goes back to the second chapter where Shankara revealed the essence of Advaita Vedanta, essence of self-knowledge. What is the essence of self-knowledge? It starts with making a distinction between what is the self and what is not the self. Why do you make this distinction? Because Advaita Vedanta, it hinges on the claim that we really do not know ourselves. What we are, we do not know that. And we think of what we think we know about ourselves is what we are not. So to, to correct this error, Vedanta engages in a, an investigation into the self. And we have seen, this is standard Advaita Vedanta. You question, who am I? I will take the obvious answer, the body. And then we see why I am not the body, why I am not the mind. And various methodologies are applied here. Methods of investigation which all of us, we can do now, straight away, easily available to us, immediately. For example, Drik Drishya, the one, I mean, you are familiar with it because it's one of my favorite approaches. The distinction between the seer and the seeing. What we see, what we know as an object can't be me. I am the knower. So what is known by me is an object. How can that be me? Is this crucial uh, distinction understood? It's a very important, very simple distinction. That which I know, I see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. I am the seer, hearer, smeller, taster or toucher of that thing. I cannot be that thing. So this distinction between subject and object, which is implicit, but we don't pay attention to it. Advaita Vedanta forces us to pay attention to something that's obvious. That you are the seer, you are the witness, you are not the uh, witnessed object. So, the body, it's an object. Um, and uh, uh, I am the witness of that. Even more so, the mind, full of objects. They are subtle objects, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, ideas, even the ego, object. I am aware of it. And therefore we are pushed back to this pure subject. Why pure subject? Pure not in the sense of a very good subject. Pure in the sense of a subject divested of all objects. I am the knower or experiencer or witness of this entire panorama of the world, of this ever-changing body, and even more fast-changing mind. I was just reading today in the news, it was there. Quote from, recent quote from the famous actress Sophia Loren. She says, it's the body which changes, the mind does not change. I was, it sounds Vedantic, so I was attracted, I, I clicked that and I read. What she's saying is that, she's talking how she has become older, her body has become older. But she says that, when she says mind does not change, what she means is, it's actually a very, very good observation. Um, our, our habits, our uh, uh, personality, our quirks, they don't change very easily. The body gets older, and but we basically remain the same person with all our faults and strengths and weaknesses. It doesn't change so much. And that's a very interesting spiritual insight. The yogis know about it. The subtle body, which is what she is calling the mind, that changes ever so slowly from lifetime to lifetime. That's the one which slowly evolves. But the mind changes. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, they go, they come and go very fast. I am the witness of all of these. Other methods also, they come to the same conclusion. What's another method? The method of the five sheets. Observe physical, what we think of ourselves. Entirety is we, we are not that. What do you know about yourself? The physical body. It's what, what is called the Annamaya Kosha, the vital sheet, the uh, physiological body, um, the, the food body, 
the actual physical body. Then there is the pranamaya kosha, the body of prana which is the physiological body, the vital body where all our life activities are taking place. So far observable by the doctor. External observer can see the physical body and also the functioning. Um, so it's, it's what a pathology report will show up to. The, a good doctor will see what's going on there. But now we go into something deeper. We observe about ourselves a mind. Not just the, uh, the annamaya, pranamaya, but also the manomaya. And this is where it goes beyond the ken of modern science or even, even the sharpest doctor. Thoughts, feelings, even perceptions. That's in the mind. And that's the manomaya. And then go even subtler, look even deeper. There's the intellect, which is doing all this thinking, all this understanding, all this Vedanta. That's also just the intellect. It's a thought. It's understanding. That which comprehends or does not comprehend. It's, a, it's another function of the mind, a subtler function of the mind. That which gives you a sense of, uh, I am this, the ego. All of that, Vijnanamaya Kosha. And then beyond that, if you try to force backwards, if you try to investigate, you'll just end up with a blankness. Like the blankness of deep sleep or the blankness of meditation. Absolutely calm, calm down the mind, blank. All of this, Vedanta says, notice, they're all experiences. The body is experienced. The physiological body, pranic body is experienced. Mind is, manomaya kosha is experienced. The vijnanamaya kosha is, so all of these are experiences. And you are the witness, same witness consciousness. This is the method of Panchakosha. Or there is the method of the three states. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. The whole of the Mandukya we studied. It boils down to this thing that you are not the waker, dreamer or deep sleeper. You are that core consciousness which dressed up as the waker. I turn up with this body and this world as Sarva Priyananda. I the waker and Sarva Priyananda. Here there are 72. Uh, counting myself 72. Uh, wakers in different bodies, different minds. But when we fall asleep, each of us has a different world and, and in that world we also exist. We are the dreamer. And then we completely deep sleep, blank. Each of us experiences that blankness every day. The same consciousness appears as the waker in experiencing the waker's world, dreamer, the dream worlds and the deep sleeper, blankness. But the consciousness is one and through, running through all of this. Again, the same witness consciousness. So all of these are different methodologies, which Vedanta says, you can first understand the methodology, and then come to a clear understanding of yourself as consciousness. But most important, experientially, many people postpone this. They say, okay, I've heard the teaching, I have understood it. Now the experience depends on many years of spiritual practice, so I will now engage with it. For 40 years later, I'll come back and tell you whether I have experienced it or not. No, no, no. You are making a big mistake. Advaita Vedanta says, just now, what spiritual practice do you have to do to experience the body? Nothing. Just look at it. It's here. Exactly like that. Even more so. There is no further practice to be done to know that you are this witness consciousness. You are right here. So if, it, if it, one doesn't get it, if it's not clear what is being meant here, then all the spiritual practices will be helpful. But when you finally get it, you will know it was there all along, all the time. So this witness consciousness, the real self, now I'm making a distinction between self and not self. The real self or the self, atma, not self, anatma. What is the not self? 
which I had taken to be the self till now. Body, mind, intellect, ego. Specifically the ego, the sense of I. This is what I thought till about myself till now. I and the ego is surrounded by mind and body. So I, this, this person with this body, with these memories, with these abilities, with these knowledge, with these achievements, with these memories, all of this is who I am. Now we realize the whole thing is the apparent self, not self. Sanskrit, Anatma. You are the witness of this not self. What about, so now, notice, what are the characteristics of these two? You, the witness, must be first and foremost, you must be consciousness, because you are aware, you experience. And the Anatma, the not self, is not conscious. It shines with your, with your reflected consciousness. That's why the mind feels lit up by consciousness. But a consciousness does not belong to the Anatma. It belongs to you, the real self. Notice, you are one, Ekam. And the Anatma, the not-self, is a composite of many things. The body obviously has millions and billions of cells. And the mind has so many thoughts, so many facets, so many modules to it. Like memory and intellect and um, you know, personality. So many things are there in the mind. These are all complex, uh, like a, a complex of things, but you are one. Consciousness, self is one, the not-self is many. Another thing, notice that obviously the world outside is changing and the not-self, body is changing and the mind is also changing, Sophia Lauren notwithstanding. The mind is also changing. All of this is subject to change and you, the self, which is consciousness in itself, is not subject to change. You say, why do you say that? Are you stipulating this not subject to change? I'm not stipulating it. Notice, how can it be uh, subject to change? Consciousness, which is uniform awareness, change means it must have parts. They change in something, always is change in its parts. Um, consciousness, we just, we just agreed, it has no parts. It is one, uniform. How, what will change? How will it change? What will change into what? Not only that, a deeper reason why consciousness, there can be no possibility of change in consciousness. How would you know? If there's a change in consciousness, it would be an object. If you know about a change in consciousness, it would be an object of your, you, the awareness. Then it would not be you, the awareness. Remember, object and subject are different. Did that make sense? Huh? Think about it. It's impossible that you can know of any change in consciousness. Okay, we can't know of a change in consciousness. Why can't there be an unknown change in consciousness? Not even worth answering <laughs> the question. You can say anything. If it is in principle completely unknowable, then anything could, be, could happen. It's no, it's no point talking about such a thing at all. So, there is no change possible in consciousness. Hold on to that. No change possible in consciousness. No change possible in the real self. All change is in the world and the apparent self, the not-self. Atma, no change. Anatma, change. And so on. All trouble, very important, all trouble is in the not-self. What we considered to be trouble earlier. Um, sickness, body, not-self. It's not my sickness. Um, unhappiness, mind, not-self. It's not my depression. So lack of fulfillment, not-self. Another thing, the self is, consciousness self is perfect. It is unlimited. 
we will not go into it. It will take a whole class. But we have studied it many times. It is not limited by space or time or object. It is non-dual. It is not subject to change, not subject to old age, disease, frustration, depression, death. Consciousness is free of all trouble. And all trouble is in the not-self. And so on. So these are all of this is taken for granted in this verse. We have studied all these things now. Now, um, this distinction between self and not-self. And just, just, you know these things, but just as an important marker, this is also not Advaita. Non-dualism, see this is a kind of dualism itself. Self and not-self. It's a Sankhya and Prakriti Purusha. So Advaita will, will be that the not-self is absorbed back into the self. The whole world and body-mind appears to consciousness. In consciousness is nothing but consciousness. This is not mentioned here. It will come in 24th verse. Brahma, Arpanam, Brahma, Havi. But anyway, I am just mentioning it. Um, the self-not-self distinction is just by the way. Uh, it's on, on the way. But it's a very, very important distinction. That'll, uh, it's, it's a key to understanding Advaita Vedanta. Alright, all this is background. Now, what is the meaning of this verse? The meaning of this verse is all these distinctions between self and not-self, which we did. Self is consciousness, not-self is not-consciousness. Uh, self is, uh, uh, is one, not-self is composite. Notice one distinction, very important. There is no action in the self. And there is all action in the not-self. Pure consciousness does not act, does not change, is not capable of action. There is no question of doing something in pure consciousness or even stopping action. What can stop action? That which is, has possibility of action can stop action. Karma and akarma, doing work and not doing work, that's possible for something that does work. But in pure consciousness, which is beyond this, there is nothing for it to change into, nothing for it to do, nowhere for it to do. So, it is the pure consciousness which we are, we notice is actually beyond action. But the body-mind is ever engaged in action. You notice the dialogue with uh, Rupert Spira, one point I brought up was, uh, he uses this phrase, what is this entire universe and the body-mind? It is the activity of consciousness, he says. Now he understands it perfectly, what he means by that. The only thing is, I just pointed out to him, that consciousness in itself does not have activity. And he of course immediately agreed. He, he said, yes, it's like a movie in which a lot of movies playing on a screen. But it is true. In his words, if you go and touch the screen, there's nothing going on there. The screen, nothing, you know, even a car chase, a Hollywood car chase, cops and robbers in the movie, but not in the screen. So, no action is possible in consciousness. All action is at the level of body, mind and, and the world. Now, this is what is meant uh, by this verse. When we say action, it is the ego, aham, which is a part of the mind, an activity of the mind, which is surrounded by the mind and the body and which, which finds itself to be the doer of actions, karta. Karta means doer or agent of action. How? Walking with the legs, I walk. Ego, ego comes in there, I walk. Speaking with the tongue, I speak. Uh, the ego says that. Um, thoughts, understanding, I understand, I remember. Or just the opposite, I do not walk, I'm sitting and meditating. Uh, I do not think, I have calmed down the mind. All of it is the activity of the ego. 
It is the ego in the mind which is surrounded by activity and claims truthfully, truthfully, I do, I walk, I talk, I eat, I think, I understand, I enjoy, I suffer. Enjoy and suffer, that is called bhokta. So two things, karta and bhokta. Karta, doer of actions. Bhokta, the enjoyer or sufferer of the consequences of actions. So the entire law of karma is circumscribed in this limit of the ego. The ego does actions, truly, and gets the results of those actions. Actions have consequences. Good action, um, good results, merit, good karma, pleasant results. Bad action, uh, negative results, uh, that is papa, and the result will be dukkha, unpleasantness, uh, unhappy life. So, this whole thing, the whole secret of action is here. Meritorious action, non-meritorious action, the results of good action, the results of bad action, dharma and adharma. The whole thing is a play of the ego with the body, of, body and mind in the battlefield of life in the world. Pure consciousness, the real self, is that which illumines this whole movie. That is the screen on which, the screen of consciousness in which this whole movie plays out. And the whole Mahabharata plays out. If you are identified, pure consciousness, forgetting itself, identified with the ego of one of those characters, surrounded by the mind and body of Arjuna, says, should I fight or should I not fight? Now the truth is, you, the pure consciousness, you are not Arjuna. Rather, you are the completely unaffected witness of this entire drama where the whole Mahabharata fight is going on. Or you can say, you are all of it. You, pure consciousness, are Arjuna and Krishna and the good people and the villains and the entire drama, everything is within you. Uh, Swami Virajanandaji, one of the presidents of the order, he says beautifully that... The entire universe, including the body and mind, is presented to me, the consciousness, at once. Either I am all of it or none of it. Notice, the whole panorama is presented to you. The moment you, be, you are aware of this waking world, including this body and, and the mind, and the person that you think you are. Our ignorance is to say that I am this one. I am limited by the skin. From the skin inwards, I am. From the skin outwards, that. I and that. Then starts samsara for you. What happens? Pure consciousness, not knowing itself, has now identified itself with the ego. The moment I am identified, I, the witness consciousness, forgetting, forgetting myself, identified with the ego, I am still there, perfect. The screen is still there, movie is playing. But now I am identified with the ego. Now immediately the ego is fully connected with the body. So, I become connected with this mind, the person called Sarvapriyananda and the body of Sarvapriyananda and now this whole world becomes a physically real thing. Why? Because this physical body is now considered this to be me. Then the physical universe also becomes real. It, this is I and this is not I. And then samsara starts for me. Why does samsara start for me? Avidya Kama Karma, Shankaracharya says, ignorance, desire and activity. Not knowing my perfect Nature as pure consciousness. Remember, what did we see? All trouble in the world. No trouble in pure consciousness. All imperfections in the world. No per imperfection in pure consciousness. Not knowing my perfect, unlimited, purnam, on the infinite nature. 
now i find myself with a very imperfect body and mind very limited body and mind entirely dependent on this physical universe and others and i want so many things for fulfillment and i engage in action all stemming from desire and desire stemming from a sense of inadequacy and a lack of fulfillment lack of fulfillment in the inadequacy why because i think i am this thing i have no i have forgotten my completely fulfilled completely adequate pure consciousness nature now forgetting that engaging in action i try to get the infinite through the finite swami vivekananda says this is the nature of samsara you are trying to get satisfaction completion fulfillment you are looking for it where it is not to be found it is to be found in your real nature which is ever fulfilled infinite but i am using the word infinite where a very precise meaning is there not limited by time space and object not knowing that i engage in action the world cannot satisfy if i am hungry world can give me food for this body if i am ignorant world can give me some knowledge for this mind but if i want to live forever world cannot provide me with uh, uh, eternal life if i want to be absolutely omniscient knowing everything in the world you cannot do that there is a limit i was reading about uh borhe the uh, famous writer so he had a very well, i think it was umberto eco probably one of the two she had a huge and growing library and then he sat down and calculated if he read one book per day for the next 50 years of his life <laughs> that's also impossible but he said how what a small fraction of the available good books which he would like to read only a small fraction he could read so that did not stop him from collecting books he used to call it the anti library so what is a library an anti library is the library of books you have which you are reading you are likely to read and the anti library is the books you have you have not read and probably are unlikely to read in the rest of your life they are still there in the shelves and this is a good thing to have an anti library uh, because that reminds you makes you humble reminds you of all the knowledge which exists in front of your eyes which if you could you could get it but you will not <laughs> so but vedanta says that's impossible and suppose you did get all that knowledge it would fade within a few years it just go but the death of the body it will go uh and wealth whatever we accumulate wealth will go achievements in this world people will forget um, knowledge will be forgotten or superseded better knowledge will come none of it can give that infinity which we are looking for that infinity is there only in our real self so what vedanta is telling you is realize that you are that witness consciousness and then look upon this world uh, and express that infinity in your you know live the life through this one person not trying to get infinity but expressing and manifesting that infinity you are perfectly at peace and joy as the atman beyond action transcending all activity not affected um, not tired out by activity not frustrated by failure not grasping at anything by activity but expressing the the joy and fulfillment of being this infinite so what is the meaning of this language what is krishna doing here what krishna is doing is suppose we are seeing the the proverbial snake in the rope 
and krishna is telling us look at the snake as a rope we are puzzled it's a snake is krishna saying the wise one sees the rope in the snake we see that to see a snake as a snake is wise and to see the rope as a rope is wise but how can you see a snake as a rope because we are making a mistake and krishna is trying to correct the mistake there is only one way of correcting the mistake because we are seeing the snake only the krishna has to start there and what he means is it's not a snake it's a rope that's what he wants to say so he says the wise sees the snake as a rope and in this case what is so called activity uh, i am doing so many things good things or bad things the wise person sees that i am not doing all the activities of arjuna whether you will fight this battle or you will not fight this battle all those activities are not really your activities you are the screen the 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 unlimited consciousness in which has appeared the arjuna personality the arjuna body and this arjuna's waking world and you are playing out this movie nothing at all is happening on the screen as rupert said if you go and touch the screen in the middle of a intensely active you know action packed movie you'll find nothing is happening there krishna is saying recognize in the middle of all activities there is no activity going on you as consciousness own up to that notice that and no need to switch up the movie the fun is in the movie but as long as you recognize it as a movie let the activity go on you cannot stop the activity of body mind earlier verse krishna has said not even an instant goes where you uh, can stop activity body and mind are constantly in motion it is the very nature of prakriti of nature to be in dynamic motion so throughout the day the body is acting actually activity is going on you can't stop it what you consider to be stopping activity is the rest of the body and mind when i go to sleep no activity or i'm sitting in deep meditation that is no activity that is in the view of common people it's entirely wrong that is the ego which is holding forth the body and mind and saying i'm meditating no activity that's also an activity when you say um i fast what are you doing i am fasting fasting means not eating so it's not an activity and yet you say i am fasting it's an action that we are doing and because it's truly an action the ego in connection with the body and mind is restraining the hunger urges and holding it back that's an activity it takes a lot of activity it's more difficult than eating eating is an activity and not eating is a more intense activity it takes much more will power and um, conscious effort not to eat so fasting is an activity though literally it means not eating not doing something even sleep when we naturally go into state of inaction physically the body is doing everything and there is a seed of conscious action the moment we spring up from bed next next day in the morning so is reading this philosophy book which says uh, how do you get out of bed he says the great philosopher um, the existentialist kamu he said the only important philosophical question is whether we should commit suicide or not that's that's the first thing to decide whether life is worth living so this philosopher says i am not all that great but let me ask this smaller question should i get out of bed or not and <laughs> he is giving examples um, nietzsche he used to get up at dawn every day wash his face and sit sit at and write his uh, you know do his philosophical writing straight till 11 o'clock and 11 am 
and he says he was a child compared to Kant who would get up in and when, even before dawn when it was dark in Königsberg and he would wash his face and take weak tea and then start working till late in the noon so they got out of bed the dinner says go back to the great stoic philosopher marcus aurelius who was the uh, emperor of rome was great at at its peak and uh, he says he was not a morning person he lay in bed till noon but of course thinking a great philosopher so do you get out of bed when you get out of bed you have all these activities in, in seed form i have to rule the empire rome or i have to write uh, philosophical books nietzsche or kant so activities there in a seed form in deep sleep also when it get up it comes out so all the activities of the body in all the phases of body mind it is full of activity you cannot stop it you cannot get beyond it and pure consciousness you you in the real you no activity is not possible there is no question of stopping it or starting it so the wise thing is to recognize this and rest in your serene pure awareness and let the body and mind engage in action you will notice ethical action becomes much easier it's only when i am the little ego threatened by the world i act out of fear or out of desire there is temptation or terror when i am completely fulfilled and completely untouchable by death or disease or frustration or failure what will tempt me what will scare me you become completely fearless in action become completely ethical ethical action becomes easier that's what krishna is recommending you will have very deep peace in the midst of action then he says buddhiman manushyeshu such a person is wise among all human beings what is this wisdom so see normally wisdom is understood as seeing things as they are krishna is saying actually you are not seeing things as they are so the this wisdom is to see just the opposite to see in the midst of all activities you see there is no activity going on the screen is not acting in the midst of a um, action movie no action and in the activity in the non activity of the of the unenlightened person when you with the ego you restrain the body and mind that the wise man sees as activity the ordinary non activity people think sitting quietly going away to the himalayas as arjuna was proposing i will not engage in action i will go back i'll go off to the himalayas and sit and meditate there that's still part of the movie that's also a different kind of activity krishna says the so called non activity of the ignorant the wise one sees activity there too so in the midst of all activities the wise one sees no activity because i am pure consciousness there's no activity there no action no karma transcends karma and in the foolish thinking of the ignorant who identified with the body and mind well, sometimes they think i am acting sometimes they think i am not acting that not acting is also action that's also is still caught in karma you still trapped within the uh, wheel of karma buddhiman this is wisdom so this is wisdom this is the wisdom which sets you free free from the wheel of karma not by running away from activity as overjuna you are proposing not by plunging into activity as for example your brother uh, brothers are proposing to plunge into dharmic ethical action to do their duty not even that or into unethical activity like those villains across the field are trying to do not by that by realizing what what you truly are 
and then engaging. Let the body and mind engage. Swami Vivekananda put it well. He said, intense action combined with eternal peace. Intense action combined with eternal peace. How is that possible? Eternal peace as the Atman. Intense activity at the level of body and mind. You can sit in the calmness of the eternal calmness of the snows of the Himalayas. Your mind could be working like a blast furnace. It's not just quiet, quietness of the mind. Mind can be active. Body can be active. You know that you do, not, do nothing. So that's the peace in the midst of action. And that is um, wisdom. So yogi. So yukta. Yukta means that person is a true yogi. Not the, the common sense idea of a person who sits quietly in meditation, eyes closed, apparently not doing anything. That person is still acting as long as that person is identified with body and mind. I, the great yogi, will sit quietly and meditate. No. I've shared a story of a yogi I found in Gangotri. Very nice young boy from Nepal. He had his dreadlocks and sitting on, uh, in, a, in front of a cave in a very spectacular location with the Ganga flowing fast below, 200 feet below him. And from the other side of the bank, uh, they, he said, all these tourists come and they take pictures of me and I, I feel good. So, <laughs> he's innocent. But that's also activity. Clearly, there is desire and there is activity. Um, so, this person is a yogi, not who you think is a yogi. This person, be such a yogi, Arjuna. Fight this battle. Do your duty in, in the world and be completely serene, you know, centered in Advaitic knowledge of the actionless Atman. So Krishna Karmakrit, very important thing, a very interesting phrase. After making the, a complete mess of our general ideas of action and actionlessness, he says, such a person is the doer of all actions. What do you mean? Why do we do any actions at all in the world, with the body and mind, for fulfillment? And such fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment the world cannot give, action cannot give. Action is not meant for that. Action is not meant to give you fulfillment. Um, fulfillment comes from the knowledge of yourself as Brahman, the realization. Being settled in that, that when you are clearly fulfilled deep inside, having got that beyond which nothing more is there to get. Being established in which the deepest of sorrows cannot shake you. Having got that, the knowledge that I am Brahman, you are the doer of all actions. Doer of all actions means you have got what actions are, are supposed to give you. People engage in action for fulfillment. You have got it. Therefore, you are the true doer of all actions. You have accomplished action. Not that this person has done everything that is to be done in the world. You know, there is a give list. Hundred things to do before you die. Don't you ever start on that. It's a waste of time. <laughs> so, you have completed all those lists. Because what people in the world are seeking for through um, money making, through chasing pleasure, through chasing power, uh, through doing good, through chasing, chasing knowledge. In all these ways, some of them good, some of them not so good. You have, you have got that, that ultimate everlasting fulfillment. Okay, so that's the meaning of the verse. Now let's quickly look at, as promised, I'll look at the chat first. And then we will take questions. What percentage of people get it from the outside? Very small it seems. So some practice purification is appropriate for the vast majority. Of course, the whole of the Gita is meant for that. But remember, this is the, the core teaching. Not from the outset. 
Uh, Arjuna will have many, many questions. Questions about meditation, questions about prayer, questions about belief, questions about the fickleness of the mind, questions about desire. All of these will be answered, including exercise and food and all of that. So it's, uh, everything has its place. But it's good to get the core idea very clear. I mean, that seems, once you get it clear, it's also, you know, a certain peace of mind comes by knowing that at the deepest level, at this point also, it's all right. I can go about my business setting things right, clearing the path for spiritual realization, but knowing that I have it, what, what I'm seeking for, it's already there. It's more a question and it's imperishably mine because it is me. It is I myself. It's a question of making it a living reality. Yes. Practice purification appropriate for vast majority? Absolutely. We must be honest. Start where we are. Swami Vivekananda used to say, I know where the shoe pinches. It's not in philosophy. <laughs> it's, it's more in our day-to-day -day life, the little problems, the little struggles of life. Then Nidhari is asking, is individual jiva being referred to as the anatma? You have to be careful here. Individual jiva, the jiva is always individual. It's an individual sentient being. Remember, from an Advaitic perspective, in ignorance, it thinks of itself as this body, mind and ego. Body, mind, ego, identified with body, body and mind. This is the jiva in ignorance. The same jiva, when this knowledge dawns, knows that I am Brahman. The whole teaching is meant for the jiva. So when you say the Vedanta teaches, I am Brahman, who is that I? Is the jiva who is supposed to realize that? I am Brahman. When you say tattvamasi, that thou art, uh, who is the thou being referred to there? Thou is the jiva. The one who in ignorance thought of itself as the jiva, who in knowledge realizes I am Brahman. So is the individual jiva being referred to as anatma? In ignorance, what it thinks of itself is the anatma. In knowledge, what it knows is, is the atma. Krishnamurti, Bhakti also seems to be in the realm of non-Atman non ego. Yes. Notice this is entirely the core of the path of knowledge, what is going on now, from this 18th verse to 24th verse. The core of the Advaitic path. Bhakti, not only Bhakti, the Karma Yoga, the meditation, the Raja Yoga, all of these, these are practices which are ancillary and helpful but yes true not the not what is being talked about here is bhakti about the non-atman no it is ultimately about the atman it is ultimately about the uh, the um, about brahman you know what is bhakti swami turiyananda ji says in one place very touchingly he says vivekananda i am brahman vivekananda could say that it does not come so easily to me he says, it does not come so easily to us. So we say, thou, not I. That is bhakti. Thou to whom? That same Brahman, which is my real nature. It might be helpful for a long period of time to revere that, worship that and, and be centered in that as thou, my Lord. That is bhakti. So ultimately, it's not about the ego. In, in fact, all the spiritual practices are about Transcending the ego, whether it is meditation, see unselfish action, unselfish, that is unegoic action, action done not for the ego and its body-mind, but for the others. Meditation, 
where in deep meditation, one of the first things you forget, in deep concentration, one of the first things you forget is the sense of I. That's gone. You transcend the ego. Bhakti, where you lower the I and God becomes bigger. The I becomes smaller and disappears and the Lord becomes bigger. Not I but thou. So everywhere it's not about the ego. It's about transcending the ego. How long did Ganesh pause at this verse? Not as long as we are pausing. I'm sure he's a smart kid. He got it far faster than we did, I think. Doesn't this verse belong to chapter 2? No. Chapter 2 gives the... The Prabhupada Baba was asking this. Chapter 2 gives this basic idea, which I just imported from chapter 2. But now, second chap- third chapter, Krishna has talked about karma. Karma yoga. Now the question will be, Tie it together. Bring it together. My Advaitic realization, which was given in chapter 2. And my life in the world. I, Arjuna, as a warrior. We, in our lives. Whether you're householder or monk. uh, Husband or wife. um, You are um, um, son and daughter. You are a teacher. You are a corporate executive, politician. In this life, how do I live that Advaitic realization? That's the question. So it belongs in chapter 4, definitely. It's the that Advaitic spiritualization of the whole of life. Good. So there are people who have raised their hands. Prakyat? You have to unmute yourself. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, good evening, Swamiji. Um, I'm not sure how to ask this question, so I'll, I'll try to use a metaphor uh, for it. Who's asking? Uh, like what? Uh, Dimitri? Oh, Dimitri, yes. Go ahead. Yes. So uh, it's hard for me to formulate it in you know, specific language. Therefore, I'll try to use a metaphor. Like when you use the, the parable of the screen and the movie, or uh, like the steward and the master. Yeah. Is, like the screen cannot change the movie, right? Like you cannot just, okay, like walk no. outside. No. All you can do is actually witness it. Hmm. Because like what I'm trying to hint at is like it, is it the remnants of the ego that sort of says, well, how come if I'm a Brahman, I have no power? Hmm. Remember, Not sure if I... yeah, I, I understand the problem. If you take that uh, screen and movie analogy a little further, you might come up with this question. So the whole movie is playing out in me, uh, in me, the screen, but I don't seem to have any control over the what's happening there. Notice, first of all, when I say I want control, I would rather have it this way rather than that way. And it's a good thing to have. Um, it's already the ego, which has preferences, which would want that. Now, power. Do we have that power? Who does not have the power? I don't think I have much power as Sarva Priyananda. So that same consciousness, identified with the body-mind of Sarva Priyananda, the ego of Sarva Priyananda, does not have much power. Because the, the, the body and mind are very limited. But the same consciousness... Shining through the ego of God. I, the Lord of the universe. God is Saguna Brahman. Which is the other form of the absolute. Absolute in relation to the universe. Has all the power. It's the director of the movie. That's the God we worship in religion. And what we are talking about, the screen. The screen is behind both. The screen is, is underlying. Is the absolute which appears as God. And as the individual Dimitri or Sarva Priyananda. Then, like uh, the next question would be, if I'm that reality behind uh, God and hmm. Dimitri, 
how come I experience only Dimitri? Ah, yes. So in both cases, it's Dimitri's mind who's asking that. Dimi- yes, you experience you experience Dimitri because that would be that's exactly what you're intended to do. You means this body mind, which experiences itself. Remember, this question comes from an inadequate separation between consciousness and mind. Right? It's like going into a dream and then you're being told, look, you are not, not really that person. You're me and everybody else. You are the dreamer who's dreaming this entire world. That you are the trees, you are the sky, you are the earth, you are all the people and animals and the plants. And, and you, Dimitri, too, you are that. And then you might ask this question, if I'm everything, how come I don't experience it through your eyes and, and I don't know what the other person is thinking? How can I be everything? And yet it would be a fact, it would still be a fact that you, Dimitri's mind, is dreaming of this dream in which you are there. Even in a virtual simulation, when you're in total control of it, when you enter it, you take the perspective of an avatar and not others. Yeah. If you're in total charge of the whole thing, you can switch avatars and you can, you can go from one perspective to another, uh, which God can do and yogis can do. Certain, certain um, you know, in Patanjali yoga, they can see it from different perspectives. Uh, Kashmiri Shaivism says you can, after enlightenment, a person, a Shiva yogi, can actually get the perspective of Shiva to see through all perspectives. But Advaita Vedanta is very um, grounded in the here and now. What can we expect right now? You can expect to see, be the absolute, not God. You, as Dimitri, you can know your own absolute nature which is also the absolute nature of God. There you and God are one. Um, as Meister Eckhart said, the ground of God and the ground of my soul are one and the same. Which is exactly what Advaita Vedanta says, that one consciousness appears as world, every individual and the God of this world. Now that's enough for enlightenment. That's enough for uh, freedom from, from suffering. The rest of the questions... What about different perspectives? What about the powers of God? If I am everything, I, don't I have any power? You have the absolute power of giving reality to the entire universe, awareness to the entire universe, value to the entire universe. But to fiddle around with bits and pieces of the universe, that, that power is reserved for God within the movie. Yeah. So the analogy does not stretch totally. No analogy does, of course. So in Advaita Vedanta, uh, they are very clear. The jiva, even when enlightened, cannot, does not become God. The distinction between God and jiva remains within the uh, framework of appearance. Um, upon enlightenment, it sees in an absolute sense they are one reality. The differences are because uh, of the mind of the jiva, uh, which we still would like to have from less power to more power, from less knowledge to more knowledge. So that that is uh, that's what the jiva wants, and that's why these questions these questions arise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think so about the it. Expectation. Uh, yes. So what were you saying? Uh, Expe- oh, I didn't want to interrupt. No, you. I, I'm done. Yes, expectations. So then the expectation is the same because uh, those are intellectual questions that arise. Like practically, it's very clear. Like what like for for this uh, ground reality of, of what it is or what is the work to be done uh, yes. but like those intellectual questions they arise but, yes uh, and hence i'm uh, asking them so is it advisable to continue think about it as they arise think about it you, you say like like well it's 
not really practical, therefore focus on the, you know, the task at hand better. Yes, but the questions are also interesting and they are also helpful for our spiritual, this, our, our understanding, a deep understanding of what is being said here. Um, so, what the question is, why don't I become God when I'm enlightened? And Advaita Vedanta says, if you put it that way, you see the obvious impossibility. When you realize you are water, the little wave does not become a tsunami wave. Little wave becomes the entire ocean in that sense. I am water everywhere. But when it comes back to itself and can think of the waves and all, it still finds itself as little wave. And it looks up and it knows I am one with everything. I am one with the entire universe, including one with God also. But I still am not. I didn't suddenly increase and become God. Um, is there anybody else? Yes. Uh, Rick. So, you said that in the phrase, he who in action sees inaction, um, the word inaction refers to pure consciousness or being or Brahman, the, the silent. Right. Okay. Now, in the next phrase, if we define the word inaction the same way, who he who in inaction sees action, then... Consider, you know, if a person has achieved Brahman consciousness, or you know, then all of this is that. Uh, that alone is. We see the, you know, primarily our vision is of consciousness, and yet there's all this activity taking place of the dynamic universe. And so, perhaps from that person's perspective, one is seeing um, the dynamism of creation within the inaction of consciousness. So maybe that's a possible interpretation. You it, it could be a possible interpretation, um, but there are a couple of issues with that. One is, from an Advaitic perspective, there is ultimately no action at all. Uh, that if you, if you look at it from the absolute perspective, there's no action going on at all. Uh, from a screen perspective, perspective, there is the movie which is what the screen appears as, but there's no real action there. So, to see um, action in Brahman, it would be very dicey for a non-dualist to say that. So, what the non-dualist does is, um, he, uh, what Shankara's interpretation is, is that um, he says, from an enlightened person's perspective, where you think there is action, he sees no action. And where you think uh, there is uh, no action, I'm sitting quietly and meditating, he clearly sees there is action. How about Lesha Vidya, though? There's, there's even... In the highest state of consciousness, there has to be some kind of recognition of relative activity in order to function, and perhaps that relative activity is, you know, Lesha Vidya meaning faint remains of ignorance. That relative, act, you know, that I'm just saying for everybody else, <laughs> but the, perhaps that relative activity is seen contained within the silence of Brahman, the science of, of pure consciousness, and it kind of it's just a, a reinforcement of the point I was. Suggesting. Correct. And it would just be a logical point that the Advaitin is making to, to not take that interpretation. The, in fact, in one sense, the Advaitin is saying exactly that. What Krishna is trying to say here is, let all this action continue. What you think of as this tremendous battle in front of you, this unpleasant duty that you have to perform, ethical action in this world, or he will say later, after enlightenment, before enlightenment, 
karma yoga activity done in the spirit of selfless altruism is good for enlightenment after enlightenment same activity continues but this is the manifestation of your you know oneness with the universe it would be expressed as service to everybody else as love to everybody else so at that level definitely not just a little bit of action all action is acceptable in fact it is from the yogic perspective the patanjali yoga perspective which goes against action the more you are involved in action more you are involved with prakriti we have to withdraw and whereas from a vedantic advaitic perspective the most intense kind of action what we would consider as action is um, acceptable from an advaitic yeah. perspective we just have and to know that, the reali- reality and all that intense action is taking place within brahman uh, or or the appearance of it is anyway appearance so there, you of have, it. there you have action within inaction uh, yes you can you can interpret it that way but but uh, the only thing is krishna will later on i think the ninth chapter he will go on to say that look this entire world is within me one and then he will say but notice the world is not within me and this is this is the yoga ishwaryam this is the glory of my yoga so what he means to say look at it in three stages entire world universe full of activity is presented to you the consciousness this is where second chapter ends you are pure consciousness and the world appears to you is full of activity presented to you the consciousness and later on krishna will say uh, in me the pure consciousness it's not that this world is a world of activity presented to me which is separate from me like you did earlier subject object separate no 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 notice that the entire world of activity this entire universe is appearing in me the consciousness as you are saying so that till that point it's perfectly all right all activity is appearing in me and there's nothing beyond me i comprehend everything i pervade everything as pure consciousness and make it all possible then next he goes on to say but look there is no activity in me there is nothing in me is consciousness and consciousness alone it's yeah. a screen and screen alone um, if you look at the lake in which you see the reflection you see there are trees and the birds flying around and clouds sailing across the sky but if you touch it it's water and water alone it's one of those both and paradoxes you know where you can sort of see it both ways you can see it both ways and you should see it both ways that's the delight of it that's the delight of it uh, and, and that enables you to act with intense activity you know engage in uh, you want to be socially active and uh, you know for, for um, doing good to humanity or just living your life as an enlightened being all of that is perfectly all right um rashtavakra says whether engaged in activity or withdrawing from activity the unenlightened one is forever restless and anxious the enlightened one though fully engaged in activity is forever at peace the difference is that that flipping is able to see this as perfectly all right all right that's a good point um in the, is the sense of individuality a total fiction ah gloria right think about this look at the language you used total fiction what is a total fiction total fiction is still a fiction right there's still something happening so harry potter might be a total fiction but it would still make sense to say harry potter went to hogwarts uh, somebody might write a good review about it somebody might write a bad review about it children might discuss uh, the story and it will all make sense 
though it is totally a fiction. Similarly, when you say individuality is totally a fiction, suppose it is, it still makes sense for the individuality to talk about it, let the individual perform activities and all of this can go on. When you say totally fiction, it does not mean what I think you are pointing towards. Is it totally non-existent? No, no, no. That Advaita never says. It can be totally fiction and yet everything that you see go going on can go on most happily. <laughs> then, is it calmness in the midst of work? Uh, when you say inaction, inaction. Yes, but calmness is not a mental calmness. I'm trying to keep my cool. And don't push me too hard because otherwise I might lose my cool. No, not that kind of calmness. This is the calmness that comes out of realizing I am forever, I transcend work. Work and its results do not pertain to me. Is Rodrigo says, is that, is it that we are so attached to our unenlightened experience that even though we understand that we cannot let them go? It is true. Um, as Rick said earlier, a whole course of purification of mind is necessary. Otherwise, uh, it will... It's not so easy to let go at all. If deep sleep is not considered inaction because of the ego remains seed form by this logic, samadhi would be considered inaction, would not be considered inaction. Yes, even samadhi which is achieved through uh, effort, it, it's also a product of effort. And if you come back from it, there is still the seed of action there. The only thing that is beyond action, beyond the, beyond the law of karma, beyond causality is Brahman, your real nature. Samadhi is still a, is a state of the mind. That's still within causality. Okay, let me stop here. And uh, there will be an announcement. The co-host has, has an announcement. Prakyat? Yes, yes my friend. One second. Namaste everyone. We have a couple of announcements. First, uh, we have an upcoming guest lecture series for this Vedanta study group on Zoom. The first lecture is tomorrow, November 7th, 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, by revered Swami Chetranamji, who is the resident minister of, of the Vedanta Society at, of St. Louis. Uh, he will be sharing reminiscences of Vedanta monks in the West. You should have already received an email about this lecture series with the Zoom link. Um, please let us know if you have any questions. We hope you all can join us tomorrow. Second, if you would like to make a donation to support the Vedanta Society of New York and these classes, we will gladly accept it through PayPal or checks. Please visit www.vedantanny.org slash donate um, for the donation link and mailing address. I've also pasted the link in the chat um, or you can always go to our website vedantanny.org to find more information. Again, please let us know if you have any questions about this in the future. Thank you. I hope you have uh, got the link for tomorrow's lecture. If you haven't, let us know. Um, do come if you can and join us. We are very lucky that Swami Chetananji Maharaj has agreed to give this talk and I requested him to speak about some of the giants of, uh, you know, yesteryear's spiritual master Swami Pavitranji here, Swami Prabhavanandaji in, uh, in Hollywood and Swami 
uh, I think Satprakashananji, whom he found in St. Louis, um, all realized souls, I mean, Swami Chetanananji has wonderful reminiscences. I just wanted him to share those beautiful memories with us. So do join us at 5.30 tomorrow, Eastern Time. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamattu The link is there in the chat if you want to donate. Please. Samichi, there are a couple of questions in the chat. I'm just hoping to answer them. Um, oh. Yes, you can donate directly through PayPal. Uh, the PayPal link is on the vedanta.ny.org website. And the mailing address as well. And you can click it here also. The link has yes, been given can. here. Yeah, yeah I'll post it again. Yes. 